0: Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode...
1: What's up? It's Paige McDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Fleetwood Mac's Christine McVie has sadly passed away at the age of 79. In 2021, Bad Bunny was the world's biggest artist on Spotify with 9 billion streams. This year he doubled that tally with 18.5 billion streams, making him the service's biggest global artist for the third year in a row. Music audio streams in the U.S. just crossed the $1 mark for the first time ever in a single year. Voice streaming startup LogCast has announced a new integration with Spotify's app that it says aims to provide artists with a new way to earn money from content on the platform. Warner Chapel Music has struck a partnership with Web3 Entertainment company Defiant. Universal Music Group has acquired a minority stake in the independent music company, PIAS, for an undisclosed amount. Global recorded music body, IFPI, has launched the official MENA chart, which it calls the first-ever official chart in the Middle East and North Africa. Boomplay has struck a partnership with France's Generations Radio to promote African music. BMG has acquired royalty interest in the recordings of multi-platinum Eurodance star Hadaway. Japan-based music company Avex Group has struck a renewed licensing deal with NetEase Cloud Music. The video-sharing social networking service Triller, the US-based challenger to TikTok, says that it is exploring revenue share deals with major labels. Music and technology company Venice Music has appointed Danny Olivia as Vice President of Legal and Business Affairs. ATC Management has named three new manager partners, Brandon Sanchez, Jordan Alper, and Ben Rafson. Sony Music has named Christelle Kaibi as Director of Repertoire Strategy for Africa. Renee Rapp has signed with Universal Music Publishing Group and WME's Lucy Dickens and Ben Todis for Bookings. A big thank you to Charlotte Isidore of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now, tune in for a new episode of And the Writer Is.
0: Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's legit top shelf A list rock star headlines arenas across the globe. His band is the only band in music history to have four, four RAAA diamond certified singles. One of those singles, by the way, set the record for longest run at the top of the Billboard rock charts and also sat on the Billboard Hot 100 for 87 weeks. Yes, he's sold over 60 million equivalent albums and has like 100 billion combined streams. And yes, he has Grammys. But most importantly, this man is an advocate and philanthropist. All the way from Las Vegas, this family man is not just a world-class artist, but a world-class human and songwriter. And the writer is Dan Reynolds of Imagine Dragon.
2: Hey, I feel like... uh... It kinda of feels like the Uf- like you're the UFC announcer Yeah, like there the you go. He's like, and it's time. Like I feel like I'm amped. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Let's do, in, let's do this. Let's do this. Okay.
0: So uh yeah, let's start from the beginning. You're born.
2: I was born. That's okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think that happened. That, pretty sure. Pretty sure. You don't, don't brother... remember it, to yeah. be honest with you. So uh Well you do But I was you, the seventh son. Yeah, I was gonna say, crazy, you actually.
0: had a lot you have a lot of uh of older siblings. What's you know, you're you're born in, in in Las Vegas in in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your childhood.
2: Yeah, Las Vegas was uh uh formed by the mob and the Mormons. Like that's who were the settlers of Las Vegas. Believe it or not, this is a little history lesson for you. My family happens to be on the side of the Mormons, not the mob. I know that's a little less interesting. But, <laughs> but that's just the way this, the the cookie crumbles. Um my mom had nine kids yes nine eight boys one girl i am the seventh born and the seventh son after me was the girl that she wanted the whole time and then a mistake child <laughs> uh, which is my youngest brother Coulter. which is what i tell him every day but um actually my mom wanted to have more kids after him and it was just like her body finally just gave up um she's still alive though don't worry um Anyway, so but she, uh, ta- she was, tapped. She
0: tapped out at. It. She's like, I'm yeah, she, nine. I'm out. I'm out. Nine.
2: I'm out. Yes. Um, so yeah, my mom. Uh. My dad was an attorney in Las Vegas, uh, collections attorney, which I can get into with you later. But I worked for him as a janitor for a little bit, which was a really all star job. Um. And uh, my mom was really an academic. Um, she had us all take piano lessons for 10 years from six to 16 only because she had read this academic article that was like, "If your child takes piano lessons from the ages of six to 16, they'll be better at math and science. So there was no really, uh, uh, I'm not saying my mom doesn't love art and respect art, but it was, she was very much like doctors and lawyers and scientists. And that's what our family does. And to show you the reality of that, all my brothers are doctors and lawyers plastic surgeon anesthesiologist dentist lawyer 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 my lawyer is my brother my manager is my brother who's also a lawyer so um yeah so i took piano lessons for 10 years and little did she know she made the mistake of instilling a love for music and art in the seventh son which is supposed to to be magical by the way to be the seventh son um and uh so yeah, I, uh, I fell in love with music. I loved Mo- Mozart, Beethoven, Bach—all the classical is kind of what I was raised with, and I think that's melodically how I write. Probably is very influenced by classical music, and we can get into that later. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I, uh, in middle school, played a tenor saxophone for three years in jazz band, and then I also took drum lessons for a few years because my mom told me once I completed piano, then I could pick my own instrument, so I wanted to do drum lessons. Um, did that for a few years and then kind of taught myself to play guitar in, in, in high school. Started a, a garage band and stuff like that because my older brothers all had garage bands. Uh, but that was like ska years, so it was all like ska music and stuff. And I played in their bands and played in my own bands. And How much my a, band was ter- terrible, but yeah, you know.
0: before we get to that, uh, when I think of you know, being raised in a, in a Mormon family, I would assume that the music was, and this might be a, a weird assumption, but that, that there wasn't a lot of secular music, especially if you're playing classical music on piano and whatnot. But if you had, if, if I think of a family that has seven older brothers, my assumption is that all you had was secular music, you know, being like funneled in behind. I don't know what it was like. What, what kind of outside music would you be exposed to through your childhood?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, my family was not like pilgrimy Mormon for sure. Like, you know, I, I my dad grew up like constantly in our house on rotation was Paul Simon, Billy Joel, Harry Nelson, Bob mm-hmm. Dylan, uh, Cat Stevens, lots of singer-songwriter, nothing, uh, you know, no swear words for sure, certainly that, right? No swear words or anything like that. But my brothers would like they would sneak in like CDs. Like I remember like my older brother Mac bringing home like Nevermind or something by Nirvana and being like, whoa, this is like blowing my mind. This is amazing and sneaking into my room and listening to it. And then when I got into high school or actually late middle school, I really got into hip hop, but I was a child of the nineties. Um, and there was an era there that was just the greatest time to be alive, uh, to witness hip-hop. It was like the East Coast, West Coast rivalries. You had Biggie and you had Tupac, and you had then outcast coming to the East Coast and, and, and Mace and like going to be a preacher and then his comeback with Welcome Back. There was like all this cool stuff happening in hip-hop that I loved. And it was like Eminem, the birth of Eminem, like all this, just cool. It was a cool time to be like a hip-hop head. And I so I really, Fell in love with hip-hop probably more than rock or anything like that. I listened to a lot of alternative women of the 90s. So, like, Alanis Morissette, like, Jagged Little Pill, like, was, like, religion to me. That was amazing. Some grunge, like like I said, like, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, stuff like that. But mainly hip-hop mainly hip-hop and and all and it was kind of sneaky for sure you know i wasn't like going to show we didn't have uh my dad was an attorney but there were so many kids that we didn't have a lot of money there was not like i couldn't go to shows like the first festival i ever went to i played like that was Mm. you know what i mean like we never went to festivals or things like that um so yeah it was just kind of a normal upbringing did you try middle class did you try rapping um, I, I did, I beatboxed a lot. Um, so I, so in middle school, like I would beatbox with like friends and especially people who could rap and I would I would rap a little bit, but it embarrassingly so probably is is the best way to describe it. I certainly was never like I'm a rapper or anything like that, but I could, I could, you know, I could, I could do a little bit here and there. It's, yeah. so,
0: it's so advantageous to understand the complexities of hip-hop rhythms in being a, 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 a real songwriter has to understand rhythms. And so many songwriters think melodies are up and down and not necessarily rhythms where you can have... Mm-hmm. The melody doesn't have to go very far if the rhythms are really interesting. You know, so you end up with, with a Bach training Bach and, and uh, East Coast, West Coast rival will put together an interesting songwriter. You know, what when you were in a band and you were saying when I cut you off earlier that you're in this you, you joined a band in high school, like that was your first that's when you started in bands where you said it wasn't very good. What band was that?
2: Oh man, what were we called? Um, I think we were called, like, 17 years or something. It was, like, when I was 17, and, like, all of us were 17, so we were, like, 17 years. Was it
0: original music? Um,
2: yeah, yeah, and we, we entered a battle of the bands in high school, and we lost. Um, we didn't even place. Like not a, I think it was, like, third, second, first. Like We didn't even place. Um, right And rightfully so, um, because the bands that were above us were, like, these really talented... There were some great metal musicians at our school that were just, like, they could just... And they were super tight and had been together since they were young. But honestly, we weren't we really weren't great. And it was probably good for us. It was pr- uh, speaking, I'm saying us, but really for me. Like, it was like, Oh, you're not, you're not good enough. Like you need to be you need to get better. <laughs> it's definitely uh it's funny because I'll like run into the my friends who are in those bands now and they're like, Remember when we beat you at Battle of the Bands? I'm like, Yes, yeah, I remember when you beat us at of the bands. Um You
0: may have won the battle. But yeah
2: yeah, but touching on what you said a second ago, I just want to note that I totally agree. And probably the most, like, something that I saw that I was like, oh, I do that a lot. When I write, I really write like a drummer and or, or someone who beatboxes or something like that. Like, when, when I'm in the studio with people, like, my melodies come and I'm like... And I was watching, and Michael Jackson does a lot of that, too. If you watch a lot of his in-studio moments... He really was rhythmic in the way that he would explain everything. All his melodies were always like, and a lot of it, even the tracks, he would like beatbox that. He would, you know what I mean? He would like, he was really good with his mouth and formulating and articulating uh, melodies and sounds together at the same time. And uh, and I think there's a lot of artists that do this, by the way. I think a lot of the great writers do it from a very percussive place, uh, um, like you were saying. So I, t- I totally resonate with that and agree.
0: I tell a lot of people in this in, in sessions, I'm always like, well, yeah, how would you sing how would you sing this line like it's a drum fill? Is like is a comment that I make a lot because I think it's so again, it's it's easy to get stuck in the eighth notes and and it becomes every section sort of sounds the same because it's hard to hear complex rhythms or to take that risk initially. So it totally makes sense why you know, and especially for, I mean, I don't know your music previous to Imagine Dragons, but, um, but, you know, that idea of how many different sections you have where the rhythms are interesting or where it comes, where the line comes in or, you know, all that stuff, it starts to make more sense when you take it from a, a beatboxing perspective, you know? Um, so you go to, you, you go to school at University of Nevada. You, know, you transfer to BYU, by, BYU after you go on a mission. Where was your mission, by the way?
2: Nebraska. And actually, I, I originally got into BYU from the get-go, uh-huh. and then I got kicked out of BYU. What? And then I went to UNLV. Wait, wait, yes, wait, wait, so wait. Whoa, just,
0: whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How'd you get kicked out?
2: Yeah. So, so BYU is a Mormon school. Um. So you're supposed to adhere to certain, um, you know, Mormon values. And um, like uh, the word of wisdom is one of the things and it's no smoking, no drinking. Um, and then also morality. So no sleeping with someone outside of marriage. Really nothing but kissing outside of marriage is really what Mormons believe. And it's and it's kind of, you know, it's uh, a lot of Christian religions teach this, but Mormons really it's like, a big deal like if you're you know if you're like sleeping around or something then you get like church discipline they're not like hitting you with a ruler or something but it's like you don't get to take the sacrament at church and everybody sees that and your mom's sitting next to you and like the sacrament comes and you have to just pass it to the next person and they're like what did you do child do people and does
0: everyone talk about it like if somebody oh, doesn't. Oh, for
2: sure. For, oh my gosh. I can't tell you how many times we get in class and somebody would be like, did you see that Jacob did not take the sacrament? I, I have been saying that he's been hanging out with Sierra. So I can formulate a couple ideas of what happened. There. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> so I got kicked out of BYU because I was, I'm a really honest person. Like I'm a very much like my grandfather and my grandmother. It's like, what you see is what you get. I, I, I will tell you the truth. And even if it hurts me. And this is a, probably a weakness of mine to a degree, too. Like, I, I don't get me wrong, like, I believe in honesty and all those things, but man, like, there's a lot of times in my life where I was like, you know, I could have just maybe like, when I met with the bishop at BYU and he's like, are you, are you uh, sleeping around or anything? I was like, well, I, I have slept with my girlfriend, but I love her. We've been together for four years and we slept together, I think, five times. And they were like, well, now you can't go to BYU and I already had my roommate. Like it was one week away, just paid for everything. I took the ACT three times because BYU is so hard to get into, and I had to get a high enough score. Like I went to the after-school programs because I wasn't uh edu- like I, it was really hard for me to get a twenty-eight on my ACT. For some people, I'm sure they're like, oh, "I got that my first time," whatever. But anyway, so um, yeah, so it didn't serve me because I told him the truth, and then and then they kicked me out. What happened? That called, called like my.
0: What happened at home? Like, how did your how did your parents... Oh, my
2: mom cried. My mom cried. I had to go home and tell my mom everything. And then I had to tell my mom i have been lying to her for four years because she, I, she didn't even know I had a girlfriend because it was a Catholic girl and you're not supposed to date, you know. they want My mom didn't want me to have any serious girlfriends, let alone someone outside of Mormonism. Uh, so we had to hide it all throughout high school. And uh, so, yeah, it just really messed me up. But it provided great musical... Uh, fodder, like <laughs> a lifetime of albums. Um, are you, just,
0: are, you, you know. are you? religious now?
2: No, no, no. My whole family is still very Mormon. Uh, and I, I am, I, I wouldn't say I'm an atheist. Uh, I, I would say I'm probably more like an agnostic. I'm very, I'm very spiritual minded. Like I, I'm a truth seeker. I'm looking for truth wherever it may lie. Maybe that's in ayahuasca. Maybe that's in, uh like going away to foreign lands and studying under teachers like I love all things spiritual but I wouldn't I am not a religious man.
0: Why why is coming to that conclusion I was raised in a in a community that was like pretty Jewish. Like ev- everyone I knew was Jewish. Everyone went like everyone had a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah and I didn't even know that that was I never thought of it as unusual because everyone had that, you know, and the kids that weren't Jewish were basically raised Jewish too, because you're just even so close to it. Like one of my friends from Utah, he's as Mormon as as a non-Mormon gets, you know, it's like, uh, and it took me years to develop my own conclusion about what, um, like how I view the world and some of like I feel like when you travel especially in a weird sort of way when you're a lead singer of a band it's kind of a religious experience for the people in the crowd like you find yourself entranced into something different than it just feels to me it's almost like that's that's the most religious that I would ever get is like in a in in the middle of a show and you feel like connected to this audience and something different but I don't know how did you how did you come up with this conclusion in a family that was like particularly religious in a culture that's really religious
2: yeah um i and first and foremost I would say I think Judaism and Mormonism actually has a lot of similar things like it's it's a cultural religion so Mormonism is more than like you know you go to church on Sunday or something it's like these are your people this is your tribe this is your heritage like my grandfather and like it's like my ancestors crossed the plains to like settle you know it was like mormonism is uh sorry my kid downstairs is doing something with the air thing perfect is that super bad on your hand no or is that just me that's hearing that it's okay
0: you'll okay, probably okay. you'll, you'll probably hear me.
2: okay okay cool cool um yeah so so going back to to uh just Mormonism. I, it's when you leave Mormonism per se, and I haven't left Mormonism, right? Because it's kind of like forsaking everything. It's like you you lose friends, you lose family, you lose your your everything. Like my upbringing, a lot of my best friends. are still mormon right and so it causes kind of all these weird rifts where you're in the room together and you're like it's a big deal if you don't believe the same thing it's not like kind of foot in foot out like other you know some other religions it's more like yeah you know it's whatever you you can kind of be a halfway whatever but mormonism it's like you're in or you're not in and it creates weird vibes for sure so the reason i say that is i'm actually curious is that was that your case with judaism
0: well, I—I I mean, you said it right with the cultural thing, and I think part of it is because we really are in a. This is so off the songwriting stuff, which I think is fine because it, I think it's more important to talk about humans and in, in the music business and in when you are raised in a in a culture outside of uh, mainstream Christian culture, like mainstream Christian culture, you get off on. You get off of school on Good Friday. Good Friday meant nothing to me. You know? You get off for... Like, you see Ash Wednesday. Couldn't... Didn't understand what it was. Still... I'm still trying to wrap my head around what that is. You know? You know? Your money says, In God we trust. Uh, in... Um, you In school you've seen the pledge of allegiance and in 1954 they added under god to to combat communism and when you grow up in as in a culture that believes in something different then you look at all this and you're like wow i am pretty excluded like christmas vacation was was weird because all the like you watch tv and all those those kids are living a different culture so you automatically like i'm I don't know how to not be I'm Jewish the way somebody who's Italian is Italian. Like it's a really like a cultural <laughs> thing. There's obviously yeah. some like religious affiliation to some of it, but yeah, I think I'm um I you, you don't get excommunicated out of being Jewish. If you're like I'm not just cuz I'm not religious doesn't mean that I'm not a I'm not Jewish in that sense. And I think Mormonism's a l- little more strict as far as if you don't believe in the religion, then you're no longer a Mormon.
2: And that... Kind I th- of. That kind feels of. I mean, I still, When people ask me if I'm Mormon, for instance, I, I typically say yes. Uh-huh. I typically say, yeah, I, I am Mormon. For that exact reason. And they haven't excommunicated me. They could, by the way. Yeah. They could. But I don't think it would serve them to excommunicate yeah. like their most famous member. <laughs> 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 Maybe Donnie and Marie have me beat. I don't know. Yeah. But, but they they haven't excommunicated
0: me. Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I'm not the, daring them too. By the way, not, no.
0: Yeah, yeah. In case I they're listening. listening. Yeah, it's. <coughs> but also, it's like it, I think there's just a complexity to all of it. Um, that isn't. It's, it's hard to discuss. Uh, and it's it's hard to discuss a lot of the complexities that go along with. Sp- culture when it really deals so much with your family and your friends and your upbringing and you know like yeah you don't want to like
2: at the end of the day i care more about my mom's feelings and my like my siblings feelings than anybody you know i I don't like i would rather i probably would rather lie to the world and be like mormonism is true joseph smith i love him just if because it, it makes yeah, my, just my, to my keep family them. feel better, I'm like this close to doing that, but I just there's a part of me that's also an artist. that's like I can't lie, I don't buy it. I, you but know, it's not I, it's not for me. You went there's parts of it I love, like I love the thought of families are forever, and there's some beautiful things that I really identify with. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I mean you go you end up uh, you know this this conversation the tangent sort of started when I was asking about you know. Um, you know, you go on a mission, and then you you end up going back to BYU. And you were saying how you were actually kicked out of BYU. When you're out on a, when you're going to a mission to Nebraska, um, that's not really like the no offense to Nebraskans either, but I don't think of that as really like the cultural center of the United States or music, you know. It feels like that's really pulling you outside of the things that, you know, hip-hop and, and the things that you're passionate about. Um, having to go on that mission and then going to BYU, how did you keep some sort of musical compass?
2: So on my mission, um, I was ha- for half of my mission, I was in these remote country towns. Like, there were only a town because a train passed through it. Um, and and that taught me to some humility, slow living. I did, you do a ton of service work. A mission is two years. You don't talk to your family, no girlfriends, nothing like that. You write home weekly and you get to talk to your family on Christmas and Mother Day. So twice a year on the phone. Um, it was really, really hard. super lonely. You read the Bible every day. Not for me. It was very boring. Uh, and I, I mean, I've read the whole Bible, you know, a few times over. But uh, I tried to embrace it. And I did a lot of service work, worked on a lot of farms, knocked all the doors. I was like, the dude, who was like, hello, my name is Elder Reynolds. I'd love <laughs> to teach you about these guys. Like, I did that. I did that whole thing for two years. Uh, so the first half, I was in these uh, country towns. The second half, I was in down, like downtown Omaha, Lincoln. And I would even do soapboxing. So, we would get these boxes and stand on them and be like holding the Book of Mormon, like not repent ye stuff. Like, Mormons don't do that. It's not like repent ye, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more like love. It's like what you see on The Simpsons with like, what's his name? The neighbor that's like, yeah, uh, Ned
0: Flanders.
2: What? Ned Flanders. You're yeah. very much like a Ned Flanders. It's like, hey, you know, I'm here to bring love to your life. How can I help you? And, and literally, when I knock on doors, one of the things you have to do as missionaries, you knock and you say, can I teach you a message about Jesus Christ? If they say no, then you say, well, is there anything I can help you with? And no matter what they say, as long as it's not some like crazy yeah. sexual thing or something, you need to do it. So they may say like, yeah, my roof needs to be, you know, put the shingles on. And you're like, okay, how about mow my whole lawn and pick up all the dog poo? Okay. Like, so you're doing that all day, like little known secret. Anybody who has Mormons knock on their door, ask them to do something and they have to do it. So. I'm giving you the DL here. Um, but anyway, sorry, what I was getting to is I do these soapboxes, and I hated doing that. I hated standing up and being like Mr. Preachy guy. So what I would do instead, and I got permission to do was to play music. So I would bring my guitar out and I'd sit on these corners and I'd play songs and pick songs that are maybe a little like uplifting or something to like spread the good word. But really I was just like playing covers of like The Killers and like bands that I'd to when I was back home. Um, but yeah, so that that was my, so I kept music in that way and I played my whole mission with a guitar. I kept a guitar in my apartment, you know, you move every like 6 months. And I wrote my whole mission too. So, I kept up on it. What kind um, of songs are you writing?
0: Yeah. Not you know, you're you're just about to start this band. So, you know, are you already starting to write what you think of as the next step to being like, "Oh man, I'm going to write songs and I'm going when I get home I'm going to create a band and these are the new songs." Or is, is are you writing from like, a, "I'm so bored, I need something to write to keep me busy?"
2: No, I was writing with the notion of coming home and starting a band, for sure.
0: Did you have a na- fact, did you have like the name and all that? At that,
2: that time? Sorry, go
0: ahead. I said, did you have a name and all that stuff picked out? But
2: No, I didn't I didn't have a name. Um, but, I mean, I, if missionaries asked me, like, hey, what are you going to do when you go home? I'd say, well, I'm, I'm going to college, but I'm also going to have a band on the side. I never told anybody, like, hey, I'm going to be in a band and, and that's my career choice because people kind of laugh at that, right? It's like telling your friends, like, I'm going to be in the NFL. And they're like, oh, yeah, are you? Okay, keep dreaming, <laughs> bro. Like, so I would never be like, I'm going to be, you know but secretly in my heart, I believed it. And I believed it enough that at the time I was real, like I said, I was, I wanted to find God desperately. And I would pray every single night since I was young, you know, I'm not a praying man these days really, but on my mission, I would pray every night and be like, God, and if, if this can happen, please let me go home and start a band and like do what I love. I would pray for that every night in my Mormon mission. So. You know, some would be like, if my mom was watching this, she'd be like, "I told, it's because of the mormon like Mormon God, you know, <laughs> like answered your prayer, and what have you done? You forsaken him." But uh, but you know, I, I that's the truth. The truth is, I did, and I and then I got home, and I was like, okay, I worked so hard to try try to find faith, and I didn't find it, right? Uh, but you still young. ended it up. All, it was
0: you still end up at BYU. I mean, like, it's not like you you don't. Maybe you're still struggling to find your faith, but you're still tr- struggling to find your faith. You get back into BYU's good graces, and you end up going there, and you start a band. You know, to- it's
2: complex though, but it's complex. I wanted to go to Berkeley first of all, and I and I couldn't because I couldn't afford it, and I didn't have a scholarship for it. BYU, if you go there as a Mormon, it's super cheap. It's like cheaper than in any college. They give you like super crazy discount because you're Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like part money, part all my siblings went to BYU and I wasn't about to be the first one who was like not going to BYU uh, because I looked up to all my older brothers and they were cool and they were smart. And so they served missions and they came home and seemed to turn into like men and become more disciplined. And then, you know, so for me, I was like, all right, we'll follow in the line of my brothers, I guess, you know. Um, But yeah, so, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't by choice, but it was definitely, there was a lot of pressures there. It wasn't like, you know, I, it wasn't like my very first choice to go back to the school that kicked me out. I was definitely like bitter to a degree about it. I'm more bitter now because they hit me up all the time for money. They're like, "Hey, Dan Reynolds, alumni." I'm like, "I'm not alumni. I'm still a junior." And by the way, you guys <laughs> did kick me out of your school. <laughs> and uh, let me just remind you, what
0: what what were you studying <laughs> in school?
2: I, I literally, when I got there, this will show you where I was at in my life. I was like, I asked everybody I could find. What's the easiest major to take? I didn't even, I had no interest in anything but music. So I was like, what's the easiest major I could take? And repeatedly, repeatedly, people were like, there's a lot of easy teachers, professors within the uh, advertising marketing. So I did advertising marketing. I didn't even make it far enough in to be in the program or anything, but that was what my my major was. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, it was just baloney for me. I don't know, it could have been anything you
0: you start the band during those years and you know if you're the dream scenario for anybody who's in a band in college is that you're going to get discovered and all these things are going to go on were any of the songs that we now know uh um were any of those written you know yeah. during you know was radioactive written while you were in nebraska like were any of those songs sitting there where no one had heard them yet and you know what songs do we know now were written when you right. were in your most like infantile stage of the band
2: so our first single was written um i wrote it in my dorm room uh, at BYU and that was its time so that's you Huge. know if you listen to the lyrics to the song it's like leaving the academy you know, it's time to begin, isn't it? Pursuing your dreams, leaving behind everything else. Really, what you see is what you get. It was like I was writing about leaving BYU, moving back home to Las Vegas, starting my band. Um, and I, I literally, the stomp claps, the do do clap do-do-clap, was on my dorm room uh, uh, desk. It was, Genius. and I kept those in. We kept, like later we recorded in the studio and everybody did stomps and claps in a big room and it kind of gave that big sound, but we kept those in because it kind of gave a cool acoustic value to it uh, so yeah and it's and stuff, also but,
0: beautiful because you're you know part of our job is to capture a moment in our lives and that's like that's as organic as you get like that's yeah. a beautiful thing to keep that in there makes yep. you want to listen and to I it. was
2: listening that time period I was listening to a lot of um it was kind of like the birth of almost like the indie, it was like the early thousands indie movement. I was like listening to a lot of like market and the nuclear so-and-sos. And like, I remember like being very influenced by, I think they, I can't remember the name of the song, but I've never given it credit, but there was a lot of like that era that I was listening to at that time. And it's probably our most like folky music. Like we're not a folk band, but I was just, you know, I I listened to a lot of that kind of, alternative indie movement in the in the thousands when I was writing that song
0: well as we get to the next phase you know before we do that I just want to go to this next segment of what would your youngest brother Coulter ask Dan Reynolds on and the writer is and he asks um, what song do you uh, most regret
2: writing That's great okay so this is my younger my youngest brother who gave this question you're saying Coulter wrote this yes. Which, by the way, my middle name is Coulter. Uh, oh, and no my way. Reu- yeah, and then my parents reused it. It's <laughs> I a guess great they had name. so many kids at that point that they were like, well, we've run, like Bob, Matt, Clint, Paul, Brandon, we've run out of names. Let's use Coulter again, yeah. I guess. Um, Dan, so like and the then repeat.
0: Dan and then Dan. Be <laughs> like, no, yeah, no, so, no, well, no, Yeah, exactly, right. exactly.
2: Yes. Anyway, I love Coulter, and he is one of my best friends, and he is my younger brother, and he's he's actually a really successful uh, uh, music manager.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, but long story short, um, why would he ask me that question? First of all, I'm upset with him. Let me get mad. That's I'm really mad. funny. He actually, uh,
0: there was a longer part of it, but we're just going to go to that right now. If we, he,
2: right, right, of course. He definitely wants, yeah. I don't regret, there's no song I've written I regret. Let me come out the gates and say that. There's not one song that I've written that I regret. Um... Because every song that I've written, I really, like, I, I write all my own lyrics. Nobody ever writes lyrics for me. Everything I've said, I mean, genuinely. So if it's cringy now to me or something, it's like, ah, I meant it at that time. I guess that's just the way it is. Uh, I think I would probably have regrets if that wasn't the case and I'd be like, oh, that thing. And then I put my name on it and that sucks. Um, that's fair. So I don't. I don't have any songs that I regret. Uh, but what was the question again? It was like, what no, song do I not like the most that I wrote?
0: No, it was which which one do you most regret writing?
2: Yeah, most regret. I I, I really I don't regret writing any of the songs. I know that I, I want to give you a salacious salacious answer because that would be more fun. Um, I truly truly don't have... Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. If you would have asked me this when I was like bitter and like in my 20s, I probably would have been like, "Ah, whatever made us most famous. I'm never playing Radioactive. That's our most famous song. and That's not what we should be known for. Did you ever go through that phase? Uh, no, but I could have. Yeah. I definitely was faced with like that. You get to this point as a band, right? Where, especially if you have a giant success where you can be like, but now I need to prove something, right? It's like, I'm not just a pop success. Like, I know how to write an artsy record. And a lot of bands do this, right? And it's why, why they end up having like second record that fails with like, this happens a lot. This is like a cultural phenomenon in the music industry. And I get it, because I certainly was faced with this moment where I was like, wait, but like, do I only like to write pop music? And then I really asked my deep set heart that, and I was like, "Yes, I really like yeah. to write pop music." So I went down the pop music road, and I and I'm glad I did because that's the music that I love. Like I grew up listening to way more hip hop than any any like I, I never listened to a song over like five minutes. Yeah, never. but I, I don't have. like I,
0: I write you know. pop songs, and I'm not like. you y- all those songs that have ever worked, that I've ever written, have been unique for that time and for that artist. Like, you, your music isn't... I don't think of your music as pop. It's just good composition. Like, it, to me, I just listen to it as like, oh, this person understands song structure and writes from their perspective. Like nobody's question it's you have a tone that's unique you have a not just in your actual vocal tone but in your style of writing that isn't very i don't think of it as um it's it's not like you're pitching your songs to other artists when they don't work for you and that that's why it's not like i don't think of it as pop in a sense that it's pop the word pop unfortunately sounds really generic and i don't think of that as generic you know
2: well, I, I appreciate the sentiment, and I, I mean, at the end of the day, like jo- the genre terms are so funny to me, uh, especially as I get older. I, they're all, like, it's almost laughable to me to be like, "This is alternative, this is indie, but this is like bedroom pop, but this is because it's cool." It's like I, it's just a little funny to me. Like, I, I, I don't know, especially I, I, without I,
0: aisles in stores. Like, if we're not going to stores, then why do we have genres yeah. anymore?
2: It's kind of like genres exist, I think, for to find your people, right? It's like you put up the posters on your wall because it also embodies like, these are my people. Like I connect with people that listen to like, you know, this, like the emo, I'm in the emo circle. My friends are emo and we all do our hair a little bit like this. And this is like our thing. And it's cool. And it's like, not, no hate on that. Like I I dig that. I want, I want circles like that. Like we need that as humans, right? We're looking for our tribe. Um, But yeah, I think now it's just a little more hodgepodge. It's a little less like Like, for better or for worse, there's not a whole lot of, like, there's still, like, you know, you might be like, I'm, I'm like, I'm the punk guy, and my friends are all, like, we're really into punk, you know, like, skating, like, this is our thing. Like, there's still subcultures, like, don't get me wrong, subcultures are still there, and they they exist, and they're important. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's you're right, there's not this record store, like, genres anymore. It's it's a different thing. And plus, pop really is just, like, popular music, right? At the end of the day, That's it's, like, whatever is popular becomes pop.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, we'll go to this next segment. I promise that we'll get back to some more stuff. But in this segment of uh, what would Sam Harris from X Ambassadors ask Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons, he he asks, how, on average, how often do you get asked to sing Renegades?
2: <laughs> That's amazing. Well, first, do you know the story of X Ambassadors? Yeah. I will say, I will hang my hat that I... I I won't say I found them, right? Because that sounds like a big thing to say. But kind of, kind of <laughs> a little bit. Like someone sent me one of their songs. They were already doing, like, taking off in their own right. But then I showed it to Alex the Kid and he signed them to Interscope Records. So I like, and I, I think I'm an A&R or something like that. Yeah. I don't really know, to be honest. I haven't really looked at, <laughs> into the fine print. But I hang my hat on that and I say that because Sam is so talented. What a great writer. Such a fantastic writer. Great human. And his voice is incredible. His range, his like from like, come on, like talk about talent
0: and showmanship. Nobody's actually, no yeah, yeah showmanship. Showman, and, like, showman. it's just incredible.
2: nobody's actually asked me to to sing "Renegades." Um, I wish they would. I love that song. It's a fantastic song. Um,
0: that's a really funny question. I, I wonder that, if he gets that asked made me, to, that to, made to sing me "Radioactive"
2: mad. a lot or something. I wonder where that came from. I'm curious.
0: I, I, do you get asked? to sing radio. <laughs> I'll see if he responds. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, you going back to you signing, you know, there's one thing when you've now gone on a mission, you're struggling to find who you are. You start this band, you're back in Vegas, you know, some weird shit happens and you end up getting to sing some cool shows. But getting signed to a major label being based in Las Vegas is Really unusual. It happens that you guys were coming on the heels of the killers, who were a massive Vegas band, so it's not totally abnormal to think that that could work. Um, you know, the the short question is why is it that Mormon bands out of Vegas are so f- fucking good? And then the <laughs> the long question is, you know, what is it? Uh, what did it feel like to sort of break out of this? You know, to to aspire to do something, to be praying every night, to still be struggling with that, and then to have something like this, and and as a hip hop junkie, to have Alex the Kid be the guy who sort of brings you in, it all just feels kind of nuts.
2: Yeah, it it is nuts to be honest. Um, there's certainly some Vegas luck that was on our side, <clears throat> for sure. Throw that out the gate. Like, yeah, there are so many musicians that I meet that are incredibly talented, some of the best songwriters in the world. Met super talented. And their band just like, for whatever reason, not the right time, not the right place. Someone wasn't in the room who needed to be in the room. That There's that unknown factor certainly there, always. We grinded really hard. We had great musicianship. All the guys were from Berkeley, great musicians, super tight, great performers. Uh, knew how to put on a good show. We practiced a lot. We took it really seriously. We practiced every day, nine to five. None of us had side jobs. We were broke-ass musicians, and then our the way we stayed afloat, because none of us had rich families either, was playing at the casinos. So we'd go beg the casinos to play their 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 cover shows. And we'd do 50% covers, 50% originals. And those would be six hour shows. So then we got tighter and found our sound even more because we got to pick whatever influences we wanted and cover all these songs. And you're learning hundreds of cover songs. All, you know, same thing the Beatles did. You know, it's like you, you, you learn who you are by playing all your contemporaries. So I think that helped all of that um then we started to play shows in la and utah and arizona and would just drive our car up and down and we just happened to play a show at the viper room and we're having enough kind of buzz within la that alex the kid's assistant came to the show and we had an ep and we had saved up money and recorded it at uh in vegas and it was a pretty good EP, and it had its time on it. <clears throat> it had like "Hear Me," it had Amsterdam, a bunch of the songs from our first record, "Night Visions" on it. He liked our show. He came to Alex the Kid and he said, "Hey, I saw this band. They're really good. Here's their EP." Alex happened to listen to it and sent like a one sentence email to the email, and it was like to my brother who was our manager at the time, who's still our manager, and said it was just like, "Yo, this is Alex the Kid. I like your writing. Want to come write?" And he forwarded to me. And he's like, I think this is like Alice the kid, and he's like done Eminem, love the way you lie with Rihanna, and <clears throat> airplanes with B O B and Skylar Gray, and uh, Our Paramore. I think I think Skylar was the writer on that though. I'm not sure. Anyway, so long story short, uh, I was like, yes, yes, of course. Especially coming from like a hip hop background, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, of course, I, this is a dream for me. Even if I'm just like a writer writing hooks for like hip hop, cool. So I went in originally being that. He was like, hey, man, you're a good writer. Do you want to like, I'll give you a go. Why don't you stay here tonight and write, I'll give you like six hours and you write to some of my beats and then I'll come listen at the end of the day. So I was in his, you know, I drove up to L.A., stayed for a week uh, uh, and well, originally it was just a day. I wrote the best thing I possibly could. I think I wrote two songs in one evening to two of his, to two of his beats. He came in, listen, was like, cool, man. I'll, you know, I'll talk to you soon. I went home. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? You want to come in? Yeah, I'll come in. What time? You know, he told me the time I'm there. I just hustled, hustled. So then that happened. I ended up staying for a month, writing every day from 6 p.m. to midnight. I wrote Demons, I wrote Radioactive, I wrote uh, Warriors, I wrote Bleeding Out, I wrote like a lot of these early, I wrote Sucker for Pain during that time. Like I wrote so many of these songs Not knowing for what, for who, but loving it because there was now this hip hop influence that like was the missing element. Like Imagine Dragons was like, what are we? We find ourselves. It's time. It's like folky. I'm not really a folky guy. I'm not even from the country. I'm from Las Vegas, but I like these indie bands that are folky. Like I didn't know who I was at all. So it was like finding who I was. And and I needed that hip hop production to find that. This is like the truth of, of Imagine Dragons. Anyway, and, uh, and then eventually he was like, yo, I, I, like, I want to sign you. And I was like, i sign my band. Uh, and he was like, well, do you want me to sign you or your band? I said, sign my band. I've been with these guys grinding for years. They're my best friends. They also, had, they were like, they had a lot to bring to the table for sure. And Not only had they all moved their lives up and rooted to Las Vegas from all over the place to be there. So he so he said, "Okay, well, I'll sign your band." We met with Interscope, met Jimmy Iovine, um, played him some songs, and, and they signed us real quick. And that's how that's how it happened. Sorry for the long story. But that's, that's no, it's great.
0: I mean, yeah. you and I've never written together in the same room, but I will say I did get a version of "Sucker for Pain," and and I I remember being in a car trying to write verses. This is. They were looking for features, and I was in a car with Jay Cash, who I don't know if you know. And the two of I have, I've
2: written with Jay Cash, yeah.
0: And the Here, go t- ahead. two of us were writing in a car, um, parked outside of like some apartment building. I don't remember why we were in the car trying to write, but we were trying to write verses because we needed it like really quick for whatever reason. I think it was because it had just gotten the the hook was just you know. But, uh, uh, Place for, the mo- or, for the movie, uh, what, whatever what was that a soundtrack? Uh, or... uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called? Ma- Maniac. Something. Oh, Suicide one Squad. Those, like- suicide yeah, Squad. <laughs> and, and we're sitting. We're sitting in the car, and this car. This guy gets into a car, and in the spot next to us, and it's one of those spots underneath an apartment building, where the posts are too close you know where you can barely squeeze your car in and we're in a car we're just we're just trying to write and this guy gets into his car and just takes off half of his like backs up and just like backs out of his car and just like takes.
1: hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast
2: comes from invesco qqq
0: Off half the car. Like, I'm talking like he just bolted out, took off, and he just like, and he just slumped over in his car like, um, <laughs> like he was a young kid. It was just like, it was just like the worst day of this kid's life. And we're sitting there, and and all I think of is you singing the hook of Sucker for Pain. I you. like, you. And so the odds of that lyric going, playing over and over and over, again. I don't know if Cat, uh, Cash remembers that. So but, yeah. for pain. but that's a true, that's a true oh, story. That's Great. as close as you and I have gotten into the same room, but kind of a, a strange that's truth. That's amazing. Um, when you get to uh, the next, uh, well, we have to talk a little bit about Radioactive because, you know, Times a huge you got you had a bunch of songs that are you did that did really well. But there's there's doing well, and then there's breaking records. Um,
2: sure. Yep, I can tell you that story real easy. Yeah, um, it was written in that first month with Alex the kid when I was in there. i and I've seen so many. I've seen crazy stories about this. By the way, I've seen that it was for a Spider Man thing. It was never for a Spider Man thing. I never knew about a Spider Man thing. Uh, like radioactive spider or something like that it was literally alex the came down one day when i was riding there he had the beat with dubstep and dubstep was kind of like it was just coming into pop culture it was like skrillex was new and everybody was like who is this crazy guy skrillex and you know dubstep had been around before right skrillex wasn't the first to do it but he brought it really to the mainstream um and so i think I don't know this, but I'm guessing Alex was probably influenced by that and liked the idea. He always was about mixing like hip hop with weird genres, like hip hop with rock. For instance, he like felt like I had a rock voice and he thought this isn't interesting to me because it sounds like two worlds colliding in a cool way. And um, so when I heard the track, I remember just being like, I don't even know what this is, but it's, it's really cool. Like Alex, would you put way too much low end in everything he did? It too much meaning like it was right, though, because it was so weird. Like I would hear these songs and it just was like demons and radio, like all those his, his, his hip his hip hop drums were so much low end and so hyper compressed and limited to like crazy amounts. But it would hit really hard. And he played me uh, the radioactive beat and it was just like he went up. I wrote to it in one evening, wrote versus chorus, bridge, everything which is typical. I typically write a song a day. He came down at the end of the day, he listened to it. And I remember us both sitting there and I just was looking at him just kind of laughing almost a little, like, this is so weird. Like, what is this? You know, it just sounded like a monster kind of like, just like a mutation. Um, He didn't even know what to think of it. He certainly wasn't like, this is a hit. I think he was like, cool. Whoa. Like play it again. Then we listened again. And i came back the next day and we were like that's really weird man and then we brought in my guitarist and he added guitars and it brought a whole it like brought kind of this chimey element to it and then we did this whole folky acoustic beginning thing because we wanted to, to drop because it was like drops were interesting at that time like maybe we have a drop on this one um and, and 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 for the record, nobody knew that song was going to be a smash, except for me. I will say I, I did know and I fought for it. I fought for it. And I actually fought to put it first on the record because I was like, I want to make a statement. I want to come out the gates being like, love it or hate it. Here it is. Because that song was very divisive. I would play it for people and they'd either be like, what the fuck is this? I hate this. Play me like your folky song or something. Or they'd be like, I love this. Play this again. Like It was so divisive that I was like, all right. I'd been around the music industry enough to know that the last thing I wanted was to play a song that people, a lot of people are like, this is good. Like I want it to be like divisive. So we put it first on the record and I remember meeting with the label and they were like, this could never play radio, it could never play Top 40, we're going to go with It's Time first, it's the first single, you know. It's Time did good, right, it like made it up the charts an alternative and I think it did a little pop but not anything crazy. Um, and radioactive just made its way there. It just start. It just took over. It just like blew up on its own. Started to get placed in all these things. People were just sharing it, and it became a single on its own accord. And then it played top forty radio and did everything it did.
0: And it, and it's probably better that it was the second single in that sense too, because it you had established that you're an alternative band. You had established that you had a direction. Like, not that right. that was necessarily the. I don't know if that really was the plan or not, but that the. the the release schedule was couldn't have been planned better.
2: Yeah. T- it worked and then Demons followed it and yeah. it, and it I, you're right, maybe if it was first it would have been way too hard to follow. It'd be like one hit wonder, impossible to to follow this up. It's always hard thing.
0: to that kind of thing. And to answer your question by the way, when you asked Sam Harris does he get asked to sing radioactive? He said literally always and then lots of LOLs. <laughs> oh, so <really>? Um <laughs> so we could talk about that offline. Um You know, you do it smoke and mirrors is your second studio album and it was successful but it doesn't necessarily do what the previous album did not to say that it wasn't successful it was successful it had some hits on it but still not not the same th- thing that you had had mm-hmm. did you ever question because the first album must have felt like wow this question is everything easy.
2: oh my gosh question everything yeah um we self-produced. And by the way, Smoke and Mirrors is all self-produced too. And that was the thing. It was like, now let's get in a studio by ourselves. Like we can do this. Like, let's go. We, we we're, were like, look at this. We know what we're doing. Got in the studio. And by the way, it's probably my favorite record, potentially of ours. Like I look back on it and I'm really proud of that record. I was in a really dark place at that mm. time. That was me. Like my faith was just like toilet. It was just gone. And then I was like, no building blocks I was like uh, a child who like I built my whole life on God and I built my whole life on like this is the meaning of life when you die you see your family again you get to hang out in heaven it's going to be a great time You're going to eat like pie every day or something like I you know I it was it was great it was great and I and look I wish that I could have that faith because what a fantastic way to live right but I lost all of that and then suddenly I was like in this gigantic band and it was just like what is the meaning of any of this like I was just so numb I'd be on stage in front of like 200,000 people in Germany at rock and ring doing everything I could have dreamed, of. and I would just like be like yeah but I'm probably in it like I might die tomorrow and then then nothing so what like so nothing so everything nothing. Nothing this, nothing that. I might as well, why not dance like a monkey on stage at night? Just jump off and run into the woods. Like nothing, anything. Like I was just like totally black darkness gone. So then I, so that's what we were. So I was like, all right, well, let's write a a record about smoke and mirrors. Everything's smoke and mirrors. Everything's meaningless. Nothing means anything. And we'll self-produce it. And we did it. And it was too dark probably for our audience and not what they wanted. And uh, a lot of, some got it, some love it. Some didn't. It didn't do what Night Visions did. I learned a lot of lessons, but I also, I don't regret it. Like, I don't regret it. I look back and like I said, it's probably one of my favorite records that we did.
0: You've been very, you're you're in a, you know, I called you a family man in your intro because that's what you are. And when you're in a dark place like that, you were already, it's, you were already married and whatnot. How, how much did your, family play into keeping you positive
2: everything my wife is the reason i'm here today my wife has picked me up literally physically spiritually socially from the ground over and over for over a decade it's beautiful so she is she is uh you know she's my lifeline she's my ultimate religion she is you know my best friend my confidant she is also my What's the word? Uh, It's like someone. She's your
0: companion. She's your muse.
2: My muse, yes. All of the, all of those things, and and some. So certainly that, and and having kids, of course, like gives you added fodder um, to live and to live health healthily. You know. Yeah, and it's still a battle for me. I still I struggle with mental health. I've, that's no secret. I've always talked about it. I've struggled with it since I was young. It's not new new to me. Um, I've been on and off medications. I'm always in therapy. I'm always high highs, low lows. I don't know that I'll ever be a, this person. I don't know that I ever want to be this person, to be honest. Um, well, uh, sir, maybe I would actually like that. No, My wife would probably. Like I
0: mean that. it's it's also it's uh, also irrelevant. Like what you want, you know. Uh, want, wanting gives gives the other person empathy for what you're going through. Like I I recognize that if you want that, I I can feel for that. But I'm a uh, uh, on a scale of one to ten, this is as excited and as angry as I get. I don't really fluctuate that much. You know what <laughs> I mean? And 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 I find that that's useful in in how i i live but i i also am in the studio sometimes with people who are bouncing off the walls and i'm like man if i had that energy you know maybe then it'd be different you know so it's like
2: yeah you're probably so refreshing for people like that to be around like i enjoy your energy because i feel like it's very mellow and calming and like, like
0: for better you know. for worse this is as excited as i get um you know you I that's why I, I was asking about that because I think that the hard the hard question you know it's easy to ask about like radioactive. That's an easy question. You get asked about the hits constantly. But I think it's really important for songwriters and artists to know like yeah, not everything we release is the same. It's easy to go back and look at a discography and be like, Oh, that was easy. Look how many hits they had you're like no man, right. the difference between when you wrote radioactive to when you start working on evolve is like night and day. And and evolve is the first time you really start adding in co-writers like in mass. Like you had obviously Alex, but it's different when you're starting to add, you know, all these outside writers. Was that a decision that you made, or did someone say, "Hey, why don't you try it"?
2: Yeah. So we are. Um we the formula for how we do everything is really unchanged like genuinely honestly if i'm being completely honest with you the only time that i've actually been with a writer who's doing melody work with me is justin tranter and that was a fantastic experience for me and i'm talking about dragon stuff by the way i'm trying to think of anything that i've done outside that's with other writers but i i there's two things that are sacred to me lyric i always write my own lyrics and for the most part, to be honest with you, Melody, I really always write my own melody. So anytime you're seeing songwriters on any of these songs, they didn't write lyrics or melody, but they certainly did production and chord progression, and, which is songwriting, by the way. But I just want to be really clear on like what my yeah. role is. And also
0: helping, it, it, your job of your co-writer is to facilitate your best song. And Justin's really good for at sure. that. So
2: just, and not only that, Justin did help with melody. I remember sitting in the room with Justin on Believer and Justin helped put that chorus together melodically. So Justin Tranter is a force to be reckoned with. He's an amazing writer. And he also is someone that I would rebound. I would write lyrics and then I'd rebound them off. him. like, you know, what do you think about this? So he's the most collaborative I've ever been with anything. Other than that, I write all of my own lyrics and melody in a room by myself. Um, so when you see all these tracks that are like Imagine Dragons and all these writers, it's because either the producer who worked with us on the track has a bunch of writers that he works with that I don't even know. Like, when I, for instance, Joel Little, like, I remember so many tracks we did with him, and then I'd see the songwriting credits be like five people under him. I never met him, never saw him, but they obviously did a great track with him, and then the band came in and did instrumentation on it and wrote lyric and melody. So I think it's kind of a mis... I, I actually don't know what the perception is of Imagine Dragons, but it's it's not a bunch of songwriters writing. It's I, I write all the lyric and melody except for Justin Tranter, who is fantastic, and I credit him.
0: Yeah, well, um, in this segment of what would Justin Tranter ask Dan Reynolds on And the Writer Is, um, he had a few questions for you. One being... How many bottles of Chardonnay do you think you had to buy him <laughs> over the years for your writing sessions?
2: Oh, man. There was a phase uh, that we don't speak of <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I think it was Evolve when we were doing Evolve where um, Chardonnay was there was a daily Chardonnay bottle. And, and I think we wrote Believer, Walking the Wire, I don't know why... There's something, I'm, a big one I'm forgetting. Enemy probably was written during that time period, Justin.
0: Well, that's another question he asked. So it, it
2: worked. Whatever yeah, it was, exactly. it, it worked. He also yeah.
0: he also asked, do you remember the original working title of Enemy that came out of your brilliant brain when you freestyled that main melody?
2: Oh, what was it? I know what he's talking about. He needs to please ask if going to actually ask. really bother me. Um, he, I know what he's talking about. It was something funny. It was something um, funny, and I can't. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember it.
0: Uh, all right, I'll find out, um, and maybe maybe we'll get yeah. back to this one. Um, um, yeah, Justin's great, and I think part. You know, again, like the one of the cool things that this generation does, but is also infuriating, is that the idea that if you produce on a record, that that entitles you to publishing, and some of those. You know, I, you look at the all those great songs from Motown, and James Jameson, for every one of those bass lines, probably should have gotten some publishing. Like, those those, those are singable bass lines. Those are not just bass lines, they're hooks. Like, if you write do-do-do-do-do-do, you deserve probably some... The melody some, that holds a whole some song. Some of here. it, you know? And so I recognize that our generation <laughs> is... Um, uh, very generous when it comes to publishing in that sense. But if you're in the business, you know when you see all those, you know, especially because people know your reputation. Look, man, in that between those two re- albums, you received the Hal David Award from the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Like, from the Songwriter Hall of Fame, not from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to show, like, hey, this guy's got potential to be in. You you received the Songwriter Award for active young songwriters. So I think anybody who knows how it works um, probably should have the correct perception or they just they have their own head in the sand and that's their own issue.
2: Um, I would just add, too, that, like, genuinely... The reason that that's important to me is twofold. One, all the bands I grew up listening to that I loved, I knew that the singer was telling me their story and that was important to me. Yeah. I think it's important with the band. I'm not saying like, of course there should be co-writers and there are incredible writers that have written songs and artists that perform songs that they didn't even write but they mean it and they feel it, it works for them. I'm just saying for me, I knew the bands that I really loved Kurt was writing those words, and that mattered to me. Yeah. So I think it's, it's important for our fans to know, like, these are not words that are written in a factory. It's like every word I write, I meant, I wrote, I, I wrote. And, um, and our band shares all the songwriting. We, we, we split all the songwriting. We always have. And it's worked great for us. And it, and they deserve it because all of them add to all the songs. They're my sounding board, always on lyrics, melody. They'll listen to be like, oh, that sounds a little cringy or something. And I'll rewrite it, or we'll work on a song and they'll they'll write a bass line, they'll write the drums, they'll write the, like they deserve all of it. And it works and it keeps us together. I think one of the reasons a lot of bands break up actually is this.
0: Absolutely, this exact thing. I, we could start naming so, those bands, but everyone already knows who yeah. we're talking about. Um, uh, by yeah. the way, Justin responded that the word was celebrity. Celebrity was the. Everybody
2: wants to be celebrity. <laughs> that that, I, I, I thought it was salami, to be honest with you, but maybe it was, uh, maybe I was saying salami and he thought it was he celebrity. He thought
0: it was salami. He's gonna. The celebrity's like it. better
2: for sure, but I think enemy was probably the right choice to be honest. Yeah, no question. Yeah, that, it yeah. certainly
0: beats salami. Yeah. Um, although I gotta say, if somebody came out with a record called salami, <laughs> debatable. Debatable. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, believer, thunder, whatever it takes next to me these these like are you know those first three in particular are like launch pads like if that's when it's like okay so you went through your dark phase and then you kind of come out of it and you have these massive you know these those are the arena songs where before that you're playing a part of a show that's in an arena but if you can get five hits like that six hits at that point seven hits maybe oh uh, yeah i guess deems yeah you're at like seven hits at that point like you can headline arenas. So like I imagine that there's almost no going back at that point. Like, you know, it's got to feel like this project is no longer just in your head and it's and it's owned by everybody. Like I mean that by like your fans and like you know, that's out of out it's, of your control when you have that that many like really big hits.
2: It, let me say Absolutely. Yes to that. For sure. This, the band is way bigger than I can understand. It's, it's the reach of it is bigger than I have any, any understanding of. And I'm constantly reminded of that. We go to these other countries and it's just like, we go to like Prague and it's like two nights, 60,000 people, airport hangar. It's everywhere like deep cuts. It's, it's mind boggling to me. My brain doesn't comprehend it. But I, but I will say that I also, uh, I don't know what brought me to this thought, but, it, you know, and maybe it's because there's a lot of artists who have canceled tours recently. It's like, I think it's coming out of COVID too, because people are like, they got so used to like seeing themselves happy and healthy at home. <laughs> a lot of these artists, like, they were like, oh man, I was home and I actually was happy. And then they go back out on tour and they're like, wait, I don't like touring actually. I'm going to cancel this. Or I'm like mentally not well for this because... It's really hard. It's really, really hard. Like, like as I get older, I feel fine saying that. It, like five years ago, I wouldn't say this because nobody wants to hear a musician cry about it being hard on the road. And I was like, so worried that I'd sound like a whiny musician. I don't give a fuck anymore. It's really hard to be on the road. It's, uh, you know, you, you leave everything and then you're just like, existing in these hotel rooms it can be incredibly lonely, uh, especially when you're like living out of a, a van or you're living out of a bus. You're, you just have no space. And it gets to a point where you're just like, I I don't want to do this. I don't want, I'd rather just like be the Beatles who just released songs at home and never toured. And there's days where I I feel like that. To be honest, I've, I've come close to canceling tours because mentally I'm just like having to go on medication or something to get me through it. My voice is dead. And then it's like, but the show must go on. So then you have a doctor giving you like a zone shot in your ass to like make it so your voice works. You're just kind of like a monkey on strings at one point. like, Like, so you see these artists just crash. Uh, because they're just like people are just feeding them pills to just like keep you alive and at one point you're like wait if i don't actually say that i'm dying like i'm gonna like die <laughs> like yeah. you know people will just work me into into the ground at one point so um i don't know what brought me on that tangent but that well, being said i'm not canceling
0: and
2: i'm and i'm grateful for it and i love it and um but it's hard. It's hard. And so just anybody who thinks it's like, you know, you, it's not all rock star, like, party vibes, you know, at least not from what I've seen.
0: It's it's hard to do that in this era. It's just not that time. I think we all want it. This, this generation of artists and writers, a lot of them have functioning families. You know, a lot of them, like, you know it's not. this isn't the bands where you hear about you know the the current versions of Motley Crue maybe they're on Xanax so it's a different kind of thing than it, it was like you know we're just not we're just right. not doing the same thing that that previous right. generations do and I, I, I appreciate you know the artists and writers who are out there saying like hey it's normal to be fucked up in the head because that actually gives audience members something to relate to in a
2: way, um, yeah. I think it's important to be real. I've been on the road with my four kids. By the way, this whole—I yeah. just brought them across That's all amazing. of Europe. Four kids: a two-year-old, twin four-year-olds, and a nine-year-old. I can't tell you how many times I had a, like a kid throwing up on me on me in a car, and then would like walk straight on stage, like change my pants, get on stage. And it's like,
0: yeah, and you're and the thing is, all you're you're you know trying I mean? to like sleep yeah. on either the plane or the bus or whatever, and you've got a two-year-old who decides to wake up and wake you up, and you're like, well. Yeah. But that's better. Um you know you uh, obviously there's there's three more albums to talk about and we don't have all that much time left but you know Origins comes out and one of the things that I really like about it is that you you really stay loyal you are so, you're not just loyal in your home life but you're loyal in your collaborations and you're loyal in in your band the fact that the band splits publishing the the fact that you use the same writers and producers when you use outside influence but i also like that you actually have your wife as a co-writer on on a song on that, and I just wanted to know. I don't, I don't know her, uh, but uh, that seems like that's the first time where all of a sudden she shows up as a co-writer, or at least that I've, I noticed. So I just wanted I'm, to know. I'm
2: so glad you brought this up because I first need to Mark that absolutely she helped write lyrics and melody. So I was like, Justin Trang is the only one. I almost identify my wife as myself at this point because we've been married so long. That doesn't excuse it. Doesn't excuse it. But Asia is a songwriter, incredible songwriter, by the way. S- still to this day, wrote one of my all-time favorite records, which was Nico Vega, which was a band that she sang for uh, that was just fantastic, yeah, really amazing. heavy kind of rock yeah, band sure. out of L.A. Yeah, and, and uh, so she's co-written with me on quite a, quite a few songs. Yeah, Dole Knives, we did together, which is one of my favorite songs. She helped me write those, those verses. She's the only person that I've ever had write lyrics with me. Like, even Justin, Justin would, like, I would write lyrics, and then I'd, like, ask Justin, and he'd be like, yeah, try this or this. And Melody, like I said, Justin would help a lot with.
0: Every big band wants to have their double album, and here you go. Like, you know, you, uh, Mercury, Act 1, Act 2, it's really, like, the pinnacle of every, like, great band is that you can actually get to a point where you can do it, you're allowed to do it, you want to do it, it's like... It's all the things. I know that you've answered a lot of questions about this lately. um, But from like a, a, a songwriter perspective, is this something that you had always wanted to do?
2: Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, my songwriting process is like a diary. So I write almost every day. This is the same since I was 12. And when I say I write, I write, I record production, verse, chorus, bridge. Always, I have thousands, thousands and thousands of these songs. If you do the math, it's now it's 12, till now. And it's it's really a disorder. It's like I'm OCD. I for sure have like OCD something crazy where I, I have to complete a project, right? I, I have to have completion. It drives my wife crazy. i like sit down and she'll be like, okay, hey, it's dinner time. You've been going for like eight hours and you come down. I'm like, I have to finish this because if I don't finish it, then I can't even communicate with you. All I'll be thinking about is how I didn't finish that. So that's the, it's the greatest weakness and strength that I have is that I am a completionist and I work every day at songwriting because it's not work for me. I love it, it's my diary and I have to get the feelings out. When I say every day, it's like not every day, but it's close to every day, genuinely. Like there's not a week that goes by that I don't write like three or four songs. So anyway. Yes, it's maddening to me because every time we put out a record, I've written like four hundred songs or three hundred songs for that record, and then we dim, we, we dim it to ten, and then it's like people will hear those ten songs, and it's like, it's hard. It's hard for me to. to, to, to
0: but then you save. To, to but as yeah. you're writing so much more, you saved, like you were saying that you know you're writing enemy during the evolve era, and then it comes out during. This era, I mean, you obviously don't. These songs mean something to you because you don't let it go. Are a lot of these songs written throughout the last ten years? Is that where a lot of the uh, music, or is it so all these present? One, no,
2: so these ones were all written actually within the last four years. Okay. So, what is it like for almost forty songs between yeah, two records? It's crazy, man. <laughs> uh, so, so about ten percent, ten percent. When we when we worked with because Rick Rubin produced this record, when we got with him for the first time. He was like, do you have any material, you know, going into the studio that we could listen to? And I was like, yeah, I have like 400 songs. And he was down to literally comb through all of them. He was like, whoa, that's crazy. Did you write that much always? I'm like, yes, I write that much always. But I was like, but why don't I dumb it down to like 70? And I'll give you 70, because it's Rick Rubin. I'm like, is Rick Rubin going to listen to 70 songs? I don't know. He did, and he had responses to every single song And we ended up recording, you know, like forty or whatever that we put out. So crazy.
0: I mean, there's a great expression that I try to live by, just because it. um, I I also have that. I like the completionist thing. I've never heard of that word, but I there's a quote that says geniuses finish things. And to me, that's like that is that is the thing. Like there are so many. There are so many so many talented people in this business and on this planet. And, and so, and so you know, when you hear about this person, you're like, man, I remember that kid. He was so talented. Reality is that person probably just didn't have the ability to finish things. You know, like you have to finish through. You have an idea, finish the project. That's a first step because that's when the editing <laughs> starts. They need to finish that and finish that and, and stay with it yes. and have collaborators who believe in that. That's the next level of collaboration are those who believe that we can beat what we've done until like the artist is truly happy with the product. You're, we're in the service business as co-writers, as artists, we're in the service business for our fans, as you know, producers, we're in service of both the artist and the label, but all of us need to finish projects. We need to finish projects. So I, I like hearing that. It ex- explains more than you know than anything else. But let's go to, go to the next segment. We're going to go five, five for five. I'm going to just list five things and just tell okay. me off the top of your head what comes to mind. Let's start with the first one, Alex the Kid.
2: Uh, genius, for sure. Um, loyalty. I think loyalty comes to mind. He was the, he put his foot out for us in a way that nobody else would. Um, Our band almost broke up. I I think if Alex Kidd was not in the picture, we would have never genuinely, we wouldn't be where we are obviously, because he brought such a sonic sound to the band, but, um, but also just loyalty. Like I love him. He's supported me for all these years and believed in us and him and I still have a, wonderful relationship with friends how, so friend loyalty genius how about
0: yeah. how about wayne
2: wayne is my brother family wayne is like my guide he is my calming uh reasonable stable data sensitive kind we've never fought once Not one time. How about Ben? Um, Ben is... Ben and I have an interesting relationship that has gotten better and better throughout the years. We're very different people that come from really different backgrounds. And so we probably butted heads more than anybody in the band. And we had to work through a lot of... We had to work through some pretty emotional stuff. We had like band therapy and him and I really like had a do it. And I, I fault myself more than I I don't put fault on him. I'm a difficult person to work with. If you can't tell, I'm very passionate. I'm very, uh, energized about things that I'm passionate about. Ben is a really loving, kind, sensitive soul. And, um, and we're, we're, we're really, really close. We've worked through a lot. So that's, that's,
0: that's Daniel.
2: Daniel is such a character. First of all, he's an absolute genius, like textbook, like pitch knows like musical genius, plays every instrument, knows every weird, like musical lingo, um, knows tons of random facts about everything, just serious genius for real. And, and like perfect time, perfect tempo. Um, Sweet as ever, like always happy, always a smile on his face. Wonderful, like I can't think of uh, one one negative thing to say about him. I really genuinely feel like I got super lucky with my band.
0: Well, thank you for doing the podcast, man. Um, you know, um, we didn't even talk about really your philanthropy or your um, you've you've used your voice. To actually make change and make society better you know your stances for the LGBTQ community especially the culture that you came from you know um, you're you're so openly worldly and again it all starts with somebody who's obsessed with writing songs and and it your voice has really, truly made a difference to people who don't even know who you are, what music you're doing, or, you know, you, you've made an actual difference doing music. That's all we all hope to do. And I I just admire that. I admire your commitment to the art, but I more so admire who you are in this in this business. And I just... I appreciate you. I know I know we're just becoming friends, but uh I really appreciate what you've done and and you're a, a you're truly the role model that I hope, you know, you know, your kids, I'm sure look up to you. My son will, when he's pat, he just turned one this week, so he's got some time, but you know, it's like you're a role model for, for a whole generation of people. And, um, and you just, you're earning it and you're leading the way. And I, I just appreciate you, appreciate you. So thank you.
2: Oh man. Damn dude. Thank you. That was very kind of you. And, uh, I really enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed this and, uh, look forward to getting to know you better. And, uh, All love, man. There we go. Very much, super kind.
0: This episode is produced by Joe London Hypnosis. Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirch, and Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off.